0: Chariot Developer News, episode number 65, for Wednesday, October 23rd, 2013. John Kapadia and Ken Ripple talk about how Apple rules the world. We just happen to live in it. The Developer News is sponsored by Chariot Solutions Education Services. For training and mentoring in Spring, Scala, Java, Android, and a number of other technologies, visit us on the web at chariotsolutions.com education. All right, so Wednesday, October 23rd, it's Developer News, episode number 65. Uh, Wednesday, October 23rd, 2013, I'm Ken
1: Ripple. I'm Sujon Kapadia. And we are
0: here to talk about a whole lot of interesting things. There's a lot of news this week. What do you think, Sujon? A lot of different things, and it seems they have a theme, doesn't it? There's a multi-core is really kind of taking over.
1: Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate to say it, just because, you know, I make my living by writing software every day. I'm going to have to change how I code every day, how I think about it every day, how I approach architecture and pretty much the whole stack. It's it's really changing.
0: It really it's is. Yep. Yep. So why don't we start off actually with uh, we'll ease people in. So the first one is uh, a nice presentation on InfoQ uh, and actually it's got a really easy URL. It's infoQ.com slash presentation slash Asgard. Asgard, A-S-G-A-R-D. I think Asgard Um, I forget what the actual uh, name meant originally. It's some sort of maybe Greek uh, mythical creature or something. Uh, Who knows? I got that totally wrong. But the, the presentation talks about this Grails application that Netflix uses to deploy to amazon web services um and it's been around for a couple of years right now you heard about it uh, before me I, I just ran into it
1: yeah i've heard about it it's pretty big i think in the open source community and like you know netflix open sources a lot of the things they build internally yep so this is like their way of wrapping all the stuff around amazon web services and basically providing in you know, a management console on top of that and helping their build infrastructure but making it a lot easier for them to monitor and and get metrics and sort of uh, keep track of what's going on. Yep.
0: And in fact, if you're curious about all their projects, it's at netflix.github.io and Asgard is right there. You can clone it. Um, you know, you can go ahead and fork it if you want to and make your own uh, changes. Basically what I, what I was looking through, I didn't get a chance to read the entire and watch the entire presentation. Um, but I kind of clicked my way through it, uh, which is kind of one of the nice things you can do there is find all the different slide points and jump your way around on the info queue viewers. And um they, one of the things, they, they kind of wrap it up at the end and give you a couple of really good reasons uh, why they use some app like this as opposed to just Amazon Web Service Console. You know, First of all, Amazon Web Service Console, you have to basically log in with an account that has the keys, uh, whereas this can be running in a server that's locked down, so you get accounts to connect to it, um, but the keys are hidden behind uh, basically Grail's configuration files. Um, that's a huge advantage right there. Um, they have a whole bunch of different deployment models that you can put together, for, um for setting up clusters you know for kind of rolling deployments of apps across cluster nodes which is really cool um, they have the ability to automate workflow through this um you know uh, log all the things that are happening which is cool
1: yeah it's uh, great it's like one of the things like no one person can keep all this stuff in their head
0: yeah no they, uh-huh. so they've
1: made it into this application it's pretty cool
0: yeah absolutely it's it's really nifty um and they also had another resource that I found from this. Um, there's uh, the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Asgard show. Uh, and, <laughs> th- yeah. and there are three different uh, episodes, and it looks like it's recently started. So. Um, you know the, the the first episode I think it was a couple months ago. Then there was one month ago, and then there was two weeks ago. So it seems like it's a regular thing. They're trying to reach out and and uh, talk about this tool. So if you're interested in um, kind of having an application that you can share to deploy to AWS for your cloud based services, you can look into. Uh, to Asgard, it looks like a very interesting project from Netflix.
1: Wow, geez, I think these uh, Netflix developers actually don't get any time to watch like Netflix movies themselves. <laughs> That's right. Although at
0: the end of the page of Asgard, um, I forget. Let me see if I can find the project page. It said something along the lines of uh, curiously, uh, uh, where was it on here? Now I won't be able to find it. Asgard. Here, hold on. GitHub Netflix and It was some sort of paper or something uh, or some sort of page. And it explained – it was a blog entry. That's what it was. I'll have to find it. And it was like curiously – um, you know, like some of the, the, the uh, movies that the, that Asgard is being referred to from, it just appeared on Netflix right around the time they put the paper out explaining how it worked. So <laughs> you got to wonder if like, Hey, you did Asgard. Uh, I think it was like Conan the Barbarian and something else showed up on there. <laughs> so, and they have something to do with the name. So, and I'm completely uncool cause I don't know what the name stands for. Uh, anyway, so that's cool. Check it out. Asgard. Um, do you want to talk about Oboe a little bit too? Yeah, sure. Obo.js. So, So, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. No, you got it. Hit it.
1: Uh, So, this is the first time I've even heard about anything like this. And it's basically a streaming API that you stream JSON data from your server to your client. It can be completely in Node or it can be on the browser. And it allows you to basically access your data before it's fully been delivered. So, you can say, hey, let me start drawing graphics or something and start building up a a chart or something before I have all the data so I'm more responsive to my user. Or, hey, I got some data and I lost my connection. And, okay, I can still work around this And until, you know, when the connection comes back up. Or you can uh, build, like, progress meters and stuff like that or whatever. And it's actually built on something I didn't even know about. Uh, Part of HTML5, I guess, spec is. And isn't everything part of the HTML5 spec Yeah, really. Well, and
0: then it gets yanked. But yeah.
1: <laughs> right. is the XML, uh, XML HTTP request 2, which has a slew of features. If you go to the HTML5Rocks website, they talk about it all. Cool. It uh, has this thing called onProgress, which is basically an event notification that gives you progress updates that you can hook into on uh, your response stream. So mm. that's pretty cool. Something I want to check out. But this allows you to, this comes with something that handles that and a, basically a progressive parser that parses the JSON as it's getting the data. And then you can access it to start doing stuff with it.
0: Yeah, that's at github.com slash jimhigson, H-I-G-S-O-N slash ovo.js And I got to tell you, he has an index page that kicks butt. His readme markdown file, at least he um, really documents his API, it looks like, very well. So hats off to him. Because a lot of these open source projects you get to, it's like, well, download it, play with it, good luck. Um, his is pretty extensive, it looks like, so. Very nice. Advanced. In fact, he gives an example of using with D3. Um, and, and he has a, you know, he's basically creating a, a rectangle uh, selection and he's downloading data. And as he finds the data that comes in, he's plotting it. So, really cool stuff. Also, it can run on Node.js as well. Right. And in Node.js, yeah. you can read from any kind of stream you want. So, that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, it is pretty
0: cool. So, check out oboe.js, interesting new uh, newish project. Um, let's uh, talk a bit about some of these new, um, you know, multi-core projects that are that are starting to emerge. Uh, and specific, specifically, I saw a tweet by Eric, I think it's Eric Meyer, if I have the name correctly. Uh, uh, it's It responded to uh, the guy who does uh, Rubinius. Uh, it said, hey, uh, just use Scala, you're wasting your life. I'm like, ow, what was that all about? So I followed that to the rubinius announcement for rubinius 10. Now, Rubinius is a ruby built in ruby. It's kind of like a, you know, ruby that's bootstrapped inside of ruby as a language itself. And it's interesting because um Brian Shirai, uh who's a person working on Rubinius it looks like, uh he said he announced Rubinius 10, uh and then he says in the next paragraph which should probably scare some ruby people is ruby is a dying language. Business is over. It's dalliance with ruby. No major startups are lauding their, I'm sick there, (laughs) is lauding their use of Ruby and existing businesses are migrating away or simply writing new applications in a different language. I mean, yeah, definitely people are looking at things like Scala and Clojure um, and things like that and functional languages. And while Ruby has some ability for that, it's not quite its focus, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I can't speak too much on Ruby itself. Uh, Right. I know it has a lot of, you know, dynamic typing, dynamic language aspects, which people love, which has allowed it to create all these crazy frameworks that are, you know, that are really powerful out of the box because of the dynamic features that they take advantage of. But uh, like you said, you know, I think it's moving towards some of these features that Scala and Clojure have.
0: Right. I mean, we're past the hype curve on it. You know, we've already uh, gotten to the point where the people are going to use Ruby are using Ruby. Um, It doesn't have the new hotness anymore. Uh, So Rubinius 10. Uh, they're now focusing front and center on promises, uh, which is kind of asynchronous delivery of an answer to a call and non-blocking IO um, and concurrent data structures and all the things you would need for a high performance multi-core distributed system.
1: Right. And some of these ideas are lifted right from, you know, the JavaScript world uh, from Scala and from Clojure with these persistent data structures is like literally right out of the stuff that Clojure does to basically, uh, so the thing, I, I won't you know, speak too much on it, but like, so these new languages favor immutability, but that also means every time you want to make a change, you're getting a copy of the object because you're not changing the original thing. Well, if you keep doing that, that's pretty expensive in memory and time. So how do you make it cheap? So there are these things called persistent data structures that just keep track of the changes made, but still keep the original object around. So you're not copying the entire object again. Right. And that makes those operations a lot cheaper, but allows different threads to have different versions of the data and they can do their own thing and not pounce on each other but still be cheap. Scala does that too with their collections, right? They well, they don't do it with their collections right like it they do immutability. They don't do the persistent data structures, but they're adding stuff like that in with like the, the I think the Aka STM. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, yeah. okay.
0: Pretty cool. Well, we'll yeah. get we'll get to those languages in a bit, too. But, uh, you know, they have they have a bunch of interesting things coming up here. And it seems like it's really to kind of modernize the language. But I, I have a, a question because and really just an open question. Um, Ruby is a language. Isn't Matt's the one who kind of defines what where Ruby goes and then different implementations of Ruby kind of try to, to match up to his features? So if Rubinius is pushing new features in the language, I wonder what that's going to do to the community.
1: Yeah, hopefully it's uh, accepted.
0: Yeah, right. And he does say there, uh, Rubinius 10 is an experiment in modernizing Ruby. It can be imagined as a time machine that brings the future to the present, enabling us to write modern programs now. So this 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 will get very interesting. So uh, that would be x.rubini.us. Uh, and again, we'll have a link in the show notes for, for that particular thing. Kind of like a manifesto for updating Ruby through the Rubinius project. Now let's go to Scala. So TypeSafe and Elijah Tech, I think that's the right name, um, partnered to deliver Akka Persistence. So event-sourced. Um, do you know anything about event-sourced? Do you know I anything think, about the project? Go ahead. Let's talk yeah, about so that a little
1: bit. Few years back, Martin Fowler wrote a paper on a, a new pattern called event source, which is basically every, every state transition in your application, everything that happens is encapsulated as an event. And that event is stored somewhere, persisted like a journal. So everything that ever happened in your application gets stored into a journal and you can basically replay all the events in your app from any point in time. You can periodically take snapshots and say, okay, you know, I lost, you know, my, my system came down, okay, we snapshotted it last night. Let's replay all the event from point T up to now and all, what your, everything your app does is in a sense audited, right? It gets logged to a journal. And this allows you to do things like replay your app. It allows you to uh, use that information to feed into other services or other consumers that want to take that event stream and do something with it, whether it's like for monitoring purposes or auditing purposes or for a queue or something like that. But it's a whole different way of thinking about how your app sort of moves through time and space.
0: Wow. And, you know, what it seems is happening is as they're adding support for actor persistence here, um with this tool with this API uh, martin is basically going to work and integrate it into the akka persistence module um, so that will become the new akka persistence module uh in akka 2.3 yeah, which they it, say is be out by the end of the year
1: now I think you know a bunch of companies are starting to use this and the the akka so basically these actors now all the messages that the actors receive and work on all each those messages get persisted as the events. So all this state is now getting persisted into a journal and you can bring the system back up and replay the actors and their interactions through this new persistence mechanism.
0: Really nifty. Really interesting. Cool. So look for that. Um, you know, Keep an eye on the ACA project from uh, TypeSafe and uh, hopefully they'll have an alpha at some point soon and you can play with it. Um, very cool. Now on to
1: stuff that's not very cool for No, me. I'm not a oh, fan oh, of this
0: next one. Why, why, why don't you uh, talk about this craziness with, with uh, I just, Apple? I
1: put this in here because, you know, I don't know how true, like, I don't know. It's app basically, okay, so it's Apple's patent on touch typing and multi-touch, which I think it's like the gestures and like how they're recognized and interpreted. The patent was upheld. Like, what the hell Are is Are you going kidding on? me? Like, why is this stuff... I, people, we're, we're wasting taxpayer money. We're we're hurting innovation. We're, we're
0: definitely hurting innovation. Hurting
1: young entrepreneurs. Like I I don't know what we're doing here, and why, why why this kind of stuff even matters. And it just pisses me off. I think people are just making money. Lawyers are making money. The government's making money. Apple's making money. It's like why? just I mean, why this you know? is crap.
0: I mean. First of all, the, the scary, on so it's dailytech.com. It's right off of there. Jason Mick on October 18th reported this, and it states, surprise, Apple win may force OEMs like Samsung and LG to use Windows Phone. Now, let me just try to keep myself from punching the screen. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, I have this Galaxy Note 3. I went and I, I traded in a bunch of little toys to get it instead of my Galaxy Note 2. I loved it. This is the perfect phone. It's gorgeous. It works great. It, it's got things beyond what Apple does. They figured out that they put a Wacom tablet on top of it and it's a, a touch device and a pen device. And you're you're telling me that basically because Apple wants to, you know, basically make sure that they are the dominant player, they want to shut down anyone else who has any kind of rubber band kind of multi-touch stuff going on. Give I me mean, a break.
1: That's like saying that Apple stole from, you know, any anyone touching a button, like not on a screen, but like an actual button or – or, you know, drawing something on a piece of paper. Oh, let's patent that. Let's patent the pencil and, and paper. And like, oh, you can't, you can't make this because you know we've patented paper and pencil. Like, what the hell?
0: I would love to know the backgrounds of the people in the patent office that actually researched this stuff. Um, you know, they call it at Apple the Steve Jobs multi-touch patent. Um, you know, the quote is, it's dire news for top Android phone makers and tablet makers like Samsung, LG, and Lenovo, which could be faced with the choice of having their flagship products banned from sale or crippled by Apple. Oh, man. It's just awful. All right. So, we'll see. Let's Let's see. It, it, And this is in the article. Specifically, the multi-touch patent covers a variety of now ubiquitous gestures on capacitive multi-touch screens. For example, if you swipe down on a diagonal downward, it's interpreted as a scroll downwards, like if you swipe sideways, but your finger doesn't allow an exact straight line. The patent also covers virtually all multi-touch gestures, which are composed by swipes on angles. Last but not least, the patent covers typing on a virtual keyboard
1: on capacitive screens, which is what everyone's doing. Does it cover a middle finger gesture,
0: too? I would love to send one giant middle finger, finger and You know what? I would love to send several middle finger gestures to this patent. This <laughs> is
1: horrific. I mean, does Apple have a patent on the wheel? I mean, just,
0: like, what <laughs> the hell? Okay, so you know what? You should read a book. It's called Unlocking the Sky by Seth – oh, I forget his name. Unlocking the Sky. And it's about the Wright brothers. Okay. And so everyone thinks the Wright brothers invented flight. They didn't.
1: Right, exactly. And
0: it's a great book about the guy who actually innovated, like the the cambered wing, and all sorts of really important inventions. But they had the lock on flight, on the patents on flight. And for 15, 20 years, they locked down what could have been an aircraft industry. And so we could have had airplanes flying 20 years before they did um, and innovating 20 years before they did. But the Wright brothers held patents and kept everything shut down. So it just reminds me of that. Um, Unlocking the Sky. It's a great book, actually. And it's, it's amazing. It, I actually ran into it at ETE in 2009, I think it is, okay. when we had the guy who was, at the time, he was like one of the CTOs or something of uh, JBoss. And I think that was what he was from. And he was talking about innovation and open source. And he said, you know, this is the exact opposite of open source. is shutting down an industry with patents. And it just makes me sick that... Apple's the first mover in these things. They got their number one slot. And now that they're feeling pressure, they're pushing these patents and locking down the competition. It just, it's awful. Well, yeah, it's- hopefully this doesn't go anywhere. Hopefully it gets, you know, appealed. Um, but, you know, I couldn't see how we could do uh, Android without it. Um, you know, it just doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't see this going too far, hopefully. <laughs>
0: well, you know what'll happen. What'll happen is, Prices will go up for handsets because they'll have to pay licenses. You might have to pay $50 a handset to Microsoft and Nokia. Um, I'm not sure how Nokia gets fit in there in this article. I kind of jumped to the bottom. But at, at any rate. They're just uh, Windows phones now, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> God. Hey, anyway, let's move on to something happier, maybe. Thank you. I don't know if we can. Um, hey, Python 3.4 is out.
1: <laughs> yeah, so like I don't follow the Python world that much. But I saw this. And I'm like, okay, let me check it out. And. So if you look at the packages that have been added in 3 four, it's pretty cool it kind of reflects I think what's going on in in the computing and software world right now so I'll just quickly go through some of them.
0: Well and, in, you know even before we get started so okay. in, in data science right um, a lot of data science uh, developers use Python as the API yes. over Java because it's a lot less complex to write.
1: And there's just, just there's Python has so many libraries out there it's ridiculous it's, you know for text processing, natural language processing, math. number crunching, math, stats, and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's a lot more stuff out there in that in that realm than there is for Java. Yeah, yeah. And so some of the some of the modules that are out in 3.4 four are uh, async io, uh, new provisional API for asynchronous io, which is like you know, a la Netty and all these non blocking servers. So Event
0: loops. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then. Um, Selectors, high-level and efficient I/O multiplexing built upon the select module primitives, mm-hmm. which is how a lot of these non-blocking servers actually work to to deal with sort of a uh, multiple threads of of uh, of communication basically coming in and being able to like select which one they want to work on while while one's busy waiting doing something. You can then you know if the CPU is doing something and you can work on other I/O basically. Right. So you you can multiplex this stuff. Nice. And the statistics library, which is they're saying is a a numerically stable statistics library. So, I'm assuming that people in the data science community and stuff and stats community probably had a lot of good feedback and complaints about, it. well, I wish we, you know, this this and that were in Python. They probably put it in so now they can build more robust libraries on top of that.
0: Sweet. Very cool.
1: But uh, and that's my guess. I honestly have not looked into Ooh. those modules in, in depth, but uh,
0: hey, listen to this audio OOP, uh, audio op. It's 24 bit sampling. Where do you see that? That's uh, improved modules towards the uh, below the new modules. There's improved modules. There's a now 24-bit I/O. That's cool. Be cool. interesting to see like how um, people process audio in Python. Nifty. It's wow. one of my little you know filters and things like that to remove pops and sounds from audio and, and adjust the, the the levels and such. You need to have a Python library to do that.
1: Oh, well, look, it has a whole bunch of stuff around like audio loop codecs yep. and then, uh... mm-hmm.
0: oh wow, cool. It has a lot of cool stuff. All right. Maybe I have to take a look at uh, Dust Off My Python book and start looking at Python. <laughs> I never really got into it. I think the tabbed, um, you know, when you, you like indent to do uh, method stuff, just maybe think uh, Fortran or Kobol and maybe run yeah. screaming. But some of us uh, Chariot like Python a lot.
1: It, I used it at, uh, for a few months on a, in an AI course at Drexel, and it is actually a really nice language. Cool.
0: Coolness. Hey, here's one that, uh, if you want to get inspired, uh, and, and kind of think, wow, I don't know enough. Um, you should check out the, the next presentation on our list from Andy Gross. Um, Andy Gross is a principal architect at Basho Technologies, and this is another InfoQ presentation called Distributed Systems Challenges, also known as, in the title, The Free Lunch is Over Again. Uh, And he has a whole long presentation uh, about the challenges introduced by distributed systems and the need for developing new skills and tools for dealing with them. Did you have a chance to look through some of this?
1: Uh, Only briefly, yeah. but uh, I actually want to watch the whole video when I have time. But Mm -hmm. it's something that is like... This should be now one of the things that programmers and comp science students actually learn early on because that's where computing is going. That's where the architecture is going. And everything I think we've been learning the last several decades has reflected the way computers were architected and the hardware was architected up to now. That's really changing. So I think they need to change fundamentally how they teach programming and computer science. So I think he highlights a lot of these challenges, and it's something that the whole community, dev community, needs to get involved and get into and it's not something you can just and I think we've said this on a lot of the uh, dev, dev news podcasts you know it, it's something that is not like oh this is a nice to have it's like no it has to be there now
0: yeah if you're dealing with large processing challenges um, you've got these cores you should take advantage of and to do it the right way you need to program differently exactly um, and just as a little teaser he starts talking about some things like live L- so what is Paxos
1: exactly? So I'll just give a super, super high-level definition because that's all I really know right now. That's enough. Is is that'll be good for our readers. Paxos is a consensus algorithm where let's say you have a cluster of computers and one of those computers needs to coordinate activity. Well, which 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 you know which node coordinates activity? What if that node goes down? Who takes over at that point? How is that state sort of handled and, and replicated across nodes? And how do they co- coordinate without having a single point of failure. That's what this, these consensus algorithms do. And Paxos seems to be the most popular, most uh, most reliable consensus algorithm. And a lot of the major, I think, distributed software uh, applications, frameworks, libraries, whatever, out there use this algorithm to deal with consensus, group consensus rather, and uh, leader election.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think it might be good for both of us to like put that on the list to to watch and then come back and talk a little bit more about that yeah. one. I've read a couple of
1: papers on it, and some of them were really – like it, it's not a really complex algorithm at yeah. heart, but it's, it's still tough to wrap your head around. And I read a few papers that are really complex, and then the one guy wrote something that tries to distill all that and make it a lot simpler. Mm-hmm. And it was still a little bit complicated. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, everyone who's listening to this, go ahead and grab that uh, InfoQ presentation and watch it and – Please send us feedback. We're feeling lonely out there. I know most people uh, listen to the podcast and don't comment, but we would love to have your feedback. And you can hit us at, at TechCast on Twitter.
1: Yeah, that would um, be awesome.
0: Please. Yeah, please do, because we definitely watch it and we're hoping for, for people to shout out to. It sounds like we're lonely. Hello? <laughs> hello is anyone out there um, but uh, and I know people do listen because we see the stats so uh, it'd be cool to get some comments and some back and forth um, pretty soon we're actually relaunching the website and uh, we will have a little bit more uh, integration with things like discussions and so uh, I'm looking forward to that um, I'm going to wrap us up with one uh, interesting little tidbit I think this is something from Joel I'm going to steal it um, 500 free programming books on GitHub I sure hope that this is legit I think it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I know. Some of the stuff is ancient, right? I mean, some of the stuff is like, you know, APL programming and uh, Ada, Ada 95, the craft of object oriented programming. You're going back in history here. Ooh, um, I need
1: a book on Excel programming. That's classic.
0: Yeah. Oh, how about Lotus 123? Is that in there?
1: You always um, learned from Excel. It's funny because you've got CoffeeScript
0: next to Cold Fusion, uh, next to d b two, next to Delphi <laughs> and uh, and fourth. I, I was an I was a connoisseur of silly languages back when I had my commodore sixty four. And I used to think that Forth was like the future. Mm-hmm. and it's just a bizarre little language. Um, And so there's like six books on fourth. Anyway, um, right next to the grails and GitHub, which is really funny. Like ultimately there'll be this Rosetta stone where we're all dead and buried and and the new pyramids of code will be put out there. And all this stuff will be lumped together because it's just a short timeline as just different variants on programming. And then the robots would have eaten us all.
1: So uh, for fuel. You were just going to say what I was going to say. Like, forget about all that. We're not going to be here. We'll be all robots.
0: I stole your thunder. I'm sorry on that. It's all good. <laughs> but anyway, so I'll put a, a link to that. But I loved it. I just, for the fun of it, I, I clicked through a few and I found this awesome, awesome book that I think I, in the back of my mind, someone must have mentioned this to me before, but unmaintainable code, a Java glossary. And so um, this is com slash gloss slash unmain.html. And again, I'll post a link to this. Oh, yeah. And this the awesome. quotes are great. Um, the Ger- Gerald Weinberg is quoted here. It's Weinberg's second law. If builders built buildings the way programmers write programs, then the first woodpecker that came along would destroy civilization. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true. Uh, and so what he does is he goes through a whole bunch of different things that you can do to make your code completely unmaintainable. And they're hilarious. Like program design, for example, um, Uh, Let's see in here. There's exploit Java's redundancy. Java insists you specify the type of every variable twice. Java programmers are so used to this redundancy, they won't notice you make two types slightly different. As in bubblegum b equals new bubblegum. Read up on the um, unmaintainable uh, program uh, stuff. If you want a really good laugh, this is probably something that you and your programmer friends can sit around and laugh at for a good couple of hours. Um, It's just brilliant. All right, Sujan, I appreciate you getting on the phone with me at 10 o'clock at night. No, that's awesome. Um, I love doing this. Yeah, me too. I really enjoy it. This is a lot of fun. So uh, let's see. So I would say that that's it for Wednesday, October 23rd, which is really, we were going to do it Monday, but just couldn't do it then. So for Wednesday, October 23rd, uh, in the Dev News, I'm Ken Ripple.
1: I am John Kapadi, if you could hear that
0: we can actually so see you were just trying to tell about unmaintainable code and skype decided to make you unmaintainable so go figure (laughs) oh yeah it's microsoft based isn't it
1: oh it is now isn't it they
0: bought it oh oh, man they're all set to take the patents they're they're gonna eat us they're they're the new robots all right well anyway make it a good week and do some coding